Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24, hear now the word of our God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. We've been seeing how the the central question of the book of Leviticus is, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? How can humanity enter the presence of a holy God? Who can enter the holy of holies? We've seen that Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, is the center of the book of Leviticus, when Aaron enters the Holy of Holies. And, in fact, there are, there are these two uh, narrative episodes. There's the one in chapters 9 and 10 that talked about the ordination of the priests and Nadab and Abihu's violation of uh, the, whole, the bringing strange fire. And now we have this episode of the man who cursed the name of the Lord. And so there's a way in which these two narrative episodes serve to bracket part of what's going on. And actually, as we've seen, in chapter, after the Nadab and Abihu episode, chapters 11 to 15 set up the Day of Atonement with a discussion of clean and unclean. And then chapters 17 to 23 followed the Day of Atonement with a discussion of the holy and the profane. After all, it's 
it's not enough to be ceremonially clean. It's not enough to just go through the outward rituals and make sure that, ah, okay, because we, we saw to be clean means that you're approaching holiness and that you can, you can, you're heading in the right direction. But now we've seen in the last few chapters that what God means by holy is not just being clean. Being holy means to be like God himself. God calls his people to be holy as he is holy. As Michael Morales puts it, the only effective and lasting safeguard in God's presence must necessarily be authentic holiness. Indeed, that's the whole point of these last chapters of Leviticus. Just as God himself has drawn near to his people, so he calls us to draw near to him and to one another. So with that central focus on the Day of Atonement, coming into the Holy of Holies, these two events, chapters 9 and 10, with the ordination of the priests and the death of Nadab and Abihu, now the blasphemy of the unnamed man in chapter 24, which is linked with the oil and the bread. Why? Well, these two sections, in one sense, they sound very different. So it's like, what is going on here? But the first part specifically deals with the oil for the, for the lampstand and the bread of the presence. And then the final section deals with the violation of God's holy name by a nameless man. That's important. We start by seeing the light of the world. The lampstand shining on the bread of the presence offers a symbolic picture of of the Sabbath, of Israel basking in the light of God's blessed presence. Part of the picture you need to see here is that in the tabernacle, in the the sanctuary, there's only one source of light, the lampstand. Now, in the tabernacle, and in the, in the temple this will be even more so, but in the tabernacle, the, the anything inside the tabernacle is made of gold. So, just imagine, if you will, a table covered with gold, a lampstand of gold, everything in the room that is made of metal is made of gold, and, this, and the light shining from the, the lampstand. That light is going to glow off of any, of, because everything, everything in this holy place is made of gold. And so the glow in that room is going to be pretty impressive. But what's in that room? There's a lampstand. There's an altar for incense, and there is the table for the bread, and that's it. And all those things are made of gold. So the light shining in the darkness is glowing off of all this gold. And the first thing the Lord says is, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. The, the lamp of the lampstand of the tabernacle should never go out. Now the lamp has seven bowls, which connect with the importance of the seventh in Leviticus. If, we, if you recall, as we all of all of the the sort of the, every other aspect of the way we tell time is based on nature, except for the week. The day is based on alternation of light and darkness. The month on the rotation of the, of the moon, the revolution of the moon going around the earth, the, 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 the year based on the, how the earth relates to the sun. But the week 
has no particular relation to nature. The weak has to do with nature's God, that the Lord made the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. The seventh day in the week is the Sabbath day when man is called to enter God's rest. The seventh month, as we heard last time, is the month of atonement. The seventh year, as we'll hear next time, is the year of release from debt and slavery. And then when you count seven sevens of years, the 50th year is the year of jubilee. So when you think about the seven branches on the lampstand, this reminds us of God's ordering of time. And Aaron is to care for the lamps, it says, from evening till morning. Now, the priest, and particularly the high priest, is commanded to maintain the lampstands. This is not a task to hand over to the Levites. Only the priest could tend the lamps, because to tend the lamps, you've got to go into the sanctuary. And so the priest is to do this. And he's supposed to do it especially from evening to morning. Part of the, part of the reason for this is because during the day, he's about his regular duties, and so he's, he can keep an eye on it easily during the day. The command is especially... Don't neglect it so that it goes out in the middle of the night. The light of the world should never go out. And Israel is commanded to be responsible for making sure that Aaron and his sons have sufficient oil. So it's Israel's job to keep the supply, but it's the priest's job to make sure the lamp never goes out. That's, it's worth noting that's part of the responsibility for the people to ensure the proper supplies for worship. And just incidentally, that's part of why I've never actually been involved in, in making sure we have supplies for communion. Because I'm not a priest in the Old Testament sense of the idea, but the principle is that God's people are to provide the supplies for worship. It's not, it's not the pastor's job to do everything. It's, it's not the priest's job to go out and get the oil. No, actually, it's the people's job to provide the supplies. And if you want to understand the importance of the lampstand, sort of what's, what's this doing here and how should we understand it? Actually, turn over to the book of Zechariah. In, in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah sees a vision of a lampstand. In Zechariah 4, he says that the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I, I see and, and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of his rubble have laid the foundation of this house. This is part of the rebuilding of the temple. His hands also shall complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of his rubble. These, are the se- these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? 
And the second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones, literally the two sons of fresh oil, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay. Let me unpack this. Zechariah sees the lampstand. He sees, this is the holy lampstand. This is the temple. And the problem with Moses' lampstand, or for that matter, Solomon's lampstand, was that it went out. Now, we're not quite sure when Moses' lampstand went out for the last time, but by the time of Shiloh, when the Ark of the Covenant was captured in 1 Samuel 4, there's no reference to a lampstand. It seems to be unused. Solomon's lampstand disappeared at the time of the exile. The light of the world went out. We need a light that will not go out. And for that... We need a source of oil that will not dry up. Zechariah sees a vision of two olive trees, these two anointed ones, again, those two sons of fresh oil who stand by the, the Lord of the whole earth. And the seven are the eyes of the Lord. Uh, this is connected to the sevenfold spirit of God. The, the Holy Spirit is the oil. The Holy Spirit is the glory of the Lord that shines forth in the midst of the darkness. If you think about it, what was it that illumined the way for Israel through the wilderness? It was the glory cloud that led them through a cloud of, of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night as it went before them. The light of the world, the Holy Spirit shining in the darkness. The Holy Spirit who led Israel through the wilderness, the one who came to dwell with his people, the, the shining of the lampstand in the tabernacle is a representation of the Holy Spirit's presence with his people. So the, the Holy Spirit is this. Then what are these two what are these two olive trees? These two sons of fresh oil? They are the channels, the pipes that bring the oil to the lampstand. Revelation 11 will speak of the two witnesses as the two olive trees that stand before the Lord of all the earth. In, in Zechariah's day, these two, these two witnesses, these two olive trees, may have been Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets. It maybe was Joshua and, and, and Zerubbabel, the priest and the kingly figure. For that matter, but all, all through the history of God's people, there have been those who are witnesses to the glory of the Lord. And the, the, those witnesses are the mechanism that conveys the fresh oil of God's Spirit to His people. And so now, as we see in the light of the lampstand, as the light of the world shines in the darkness, we may perceive more clearly what is going on with the bread of the presence. Indeed, when you look at the, how the tabernacle is set up, the lampstand is shining on the table of the showbread. On one side, as you walk into the tabernacle, there's the lampstand. On the other side, there's the table with the light of the world shining on the bread of life. And that's what, you're, that's what you see when you walk into the holy place. And these two main pieces of furniture in the holy place are interconnected in their, in their purpose. Because the twelve loaves that are reflected in verse, verse 5 and 6, 
these 12 loaves connect with the 12 tribes. The only light in the holy place comes from the seven lamps of the golden lampstand. And in that light, Aaron is commanded to maintain the 12 loaves of the showbread. And and notice what day it is. It's the Sabbath day. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. Twelve loaves are baked each week, two piles of six loaves on the table in the holy place. Frankincense is placed there as a food offering to to the Lord. And it's arranged on the Sabbath day, which suggests that it's a weekly baking, probably done the day before the Sabbath. But this bread is called a covenant forever. There is a weekly covenant renewal whereby the priests partake of the covenant. Of course, our Lord Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life, the true bread which came down from heaven. He is the bread of the presence. And you start to see the the light of the world shining with the Holy Spirit's light, the bread of the presence with our Lord Jesus Christ, word and spirit living together in the holy place. And Leviticus tells us that... uh, that he, that the Aaron and his sons were to eat it in a holy place. It's a holy food, not to be eaten by any except for the priests. Which might make you wonder, because you might say, "Well, what about David?" In First Samuel twenty-one, David asks for bread, and Ahimelech the priest says he only has the holy bread of the presence, and he gives it to David and his men on the condition that they've kept themselves from women. Now, you might say, well, in Leviticus 24, it's really clear that the bread is only to be eaten by the priests. It was explicitly commanded that only the priests should eat it, and they should eat it in a holy place. So what do you do with 1 Samuel 21? Sometimes the Bible simply reports actions without making any statement about whether they're right or wrong. So what do we do with this? Well, the nice thing is, is that our Lord Jesus comments on this episode and helps us understand how we should think about it. In Matthew 12, Jesus' disciples are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees get all upset because they say, oh, it's not lawful to do this. And Jesus responds in Matthew 12, verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Jesus agrees that David had no warrant to eat the holy bread. It was not lawful for David to eat that bread, nor his men. But he did it, and Jesus says he was right for doing it. How can Jesus say that it was right for David to do that which was not lawful? Keep reading in Matthew 12, verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? They treat a holy day as though it was a common day and are guiltless. And Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying? There's two basic points, and the second is rooted in the first. The first point is simply this. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
The ultimate standard of righteousness is not found in a written document, but in a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the second point is that you cannot take a strict constructionist approach to the law, not even the law of God. No law has ever been written that can produce justice in every situation. Not even the Mosaic law. And Jesus gives two examples. The first, the case of David, was, and you might say, an occasional weakness of the law, namely a situation not considered by the law. In David's case, people are weak with hunger. And this is the Lord's anointed, and his men are in need. And in such a case, Jesus says, even the holy food of God may be given to them without fault. So you may, quote-unquote, break the law in order to practice justice and mercy. It's the, it's the principle of equity. What would you do when the strict application of the law would produce injustice? Well, you do what's right. And the second, system Jesus, uh, the second example Jesus gives is not an occasional problem. It's a systemic problem with the law. What do I mean by a systemic problem? It's not merely a reference to some you know, occasional place where, oh, this other situation arises. But it's when Jesus says, the priests profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. The law requires the priests to work on the Sabbath. They not only do the, the ordinary work of their daily sacrifices, but then on the Sabbath, they have to perform extra Sabbath sacrifices. Now, partly Jesus says this to shock the Pharisees. He knows that they're strict constructionists. They attempt to ensure that they will not break the letter of the law, and by ex- ex- focusing exclusively on the letter of the law, they neglect mercy and justice. But Jesus' point is, no written law can produce justice in every situation. God's justice is not a code of statutes. It is the all-wise judgment of Yahweh himself. And part of what Jesus is saying is that if the Pharisees had understood Leviticus 24, they would have understood how to to think about the whole law. Because this is where Moses goes next in Leviticus 24.10 with this blasphemer. Because in these verses, we return to the narrative of what's happening at Mount Sinai. As Israel is at the mountain learning how to worship God, learning how to come into his presence, how to approach the holy God, Israel is learning how to do this in a way to be holy as he is holy. As I mentioned earlier, the last narrative event was chapter 10, the death of Nadab and Abihu, when Nadab and Abihu tried to enter the holy presence of God, but in a manner that God did not prescribe. Here we learn that it is not merely the priests who will die for their failure to treat God as holy. It's not even just Israelites. It's even those who are of mixed birth are to be holy in their conduct and in their speech. Who was this man? We're not given his name. We hear he's the son of an Egyptian and an Israelite woman. We hear the name of his mother, of his grandfather, and of his tribe. But by the time that Israel is settled in the land, no one knew his name. There's actually something fitting about this. He blasphemed the name of the Lord, and so his own name was forgotten. Verse 11 says that he, that he blasphemed the name of the Lord in the midst of a fight. 
it's the, for, the word for blasphemy means to pierce. So it's, he pierced the name of Yahweh. He attempted to cut down his oppo- opponent by weakening his God. Uh, all through the Old Testament, you see how curses and blessings are spoken as having power. The spoken word has the power to accomplish things in the spiritual realm. By cursing Yahweh, he hopes to overthrow this Yahweh worshiper that he's fighting with. And to curse means to declare someone worthless or weightless. If you blaspheme the name of Yahweh, if you disgrace his name, then your name will be forgotten and the name of your family will be disgraced. There's a reason why God says in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When we treat God's holy name as common, or worse, as a swear word, we profane the holy name of God. We treat that which is holy as something common or worse. And if this is going to be a holy community, then the community needs to treat God's name as holy. That's why Jesus will teach us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let your name be treated as holy. May we treat your name as holy. May we sanctify the name of our God in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, in the way that we walk. And the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 13, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. The death penalty in Israel was a communal event. You can't hire somebody else to do it for you. Those who heard the blasphemer must place their hands on the head of the offender so that they may not be held guilty of that curse. We saw how the imposition of hands is necessary for the sacrifice in order to transfer life. That basically the, the one who lays his hand on the sacrifice is saying, basically, may this animal die in my place. In the sense with the blasphemer, it's, it's done in order to, to make clear that we, we are all witnesses. We are saying we heard this. It, and notice only those who heard it are the ones who are supposed to do this. They're basically saying we are witnesses. We agree. He, he did this. And we are not, we do not wish to be associated with his sin. And so we transfer that to him, as it were. The execution of the offender is, is required in order to remove the stain on the congregation. And so the whole congregation must be involved in his death. Uh, the elders, and in difficult cases, the priests, would conduct the trial. But here it is made clear that the sojourner, as well as the native-born, should be executed for blasphemy. Now, verses 15 and 16, you, you might not catch it at first, but there's a contrast going on here. It says, speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Now, part of it is the ESV capitalizes God. It's not clear to me that it should be capitalized. Take the capital letter off. What does it do? Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. There were lots of gods in Canaan. You will encounter throughout the scriptures and you will encounter throughout the land of Canaan people who curse Baal, Ashtaroth, El. If, if a man curses his own God, God is saying, let his own God deal with it. There's actually a sense of mockery here. But if he blasphemes Yahweh, 
he must be put to death. You can understand perhaps why the, the tendency amongst the Jews was later to not even use the name of Yahweh because, whoa, if I use it wrongly, then I'll be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. But the principle applies to the sojourner as well as the native. And in verses 17 to 22, Moses then explains some of the principles behind this. It's the principle of proportionate justice. And much of this is quoted from Exodus 21 from the Book of the Covenant. It takes the golden rule very literally, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And so whatever you did to others will be done to you. If you attack someone and break his jaw, then the proper punishment would be for your own jaw to be broken. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, it's also worth noting that even in the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 21, there were examples of turning the punishment into a financial penalty. In other words, when you hear an eye for an eye, that's not necessarily saying this is to be done literally. Indeed, many points in Scripture suggest that financial penalties could be offered in place of many penalties. The point is that if you have harmed another person, the proper penalty is for you to pay the same price. And so that's where, if you can, if you can translate the penalty into a, a lump sum, there's that, then, it, then it's the same basic idea. So if you pay a penalty that's considered the equivalent, that's appropriate. I recently faced a situation where I had used my time improperly. So the proper penalty was that I should forfeit time in the place of that. And the law of Moses has a lot of really helpful reflections on how this should work. For instance, when it says, whoever kills an animal shall make it good, what does that mean? Well, if you kill the man's sheep, well, the proper penalty would be to replace the man's sheep. But if you did it on purpose... That's another thing. In Exodus 21 and 22, we're told that if an offender steals a sheep, he must repay two sheep. Why two? Well, because if the penalty is just replace the sheep that you stole, that's an incentive for stealing. Because if you get away with it, you keep the sheep. If you don't get away with it, well, you just have to give it back. No, no. The penalty for stealing a sheep is that, you, yeah, you have to give the guy the sheep back. But what did you, what did you try to do to the guy? You tried to deprive him of a sheep. So what's the penalty? That you are deprived of a sheep. And his sheep? That's not your sheep. So you need to be deprived of your sheep. Because that's what you tried to do to him. So the net effect is, the guy you tried to steal from, you've now enriched uh, by exactly the amount that you tried to impoverish. That's the principle of proportionate justice with theft. Oh, but what what if you killed his sheep? Well, now you can't replace that sheep. So actually, it's a fourfold penalty because now you, have to, now you have to replace the sheep that you stole and the sheep that you killed. It was the same sheep. Right, but this, the one that you stole, that's the twofold, and then you add two more for, for the one that you killed because now, now not only did you steal his sheep, but you also killed his sheep. And so now you have to replace fourfold So stealing is bad enough, but stealing and killing is worse. And and really, the more I reflect on the principle of proportionate justice that that God gives in the law, 
the more convinced I am of its benefits for parenting. We have, we have a tendency, I think, in some parts of the Christian world to transmute all penalties into spankings. How is that helpful? Pro- proportionate justice says, ah, you tried to harm what this, per- what you tried to harm this person. Proportionate justice would say, actually, take the, make the penalty more suitable to the crime. Actually, I suspect if we did this in society, it would be better than because in our in society we have we've we've transmuted all penalties into jail time, and it's not at all clear to me how that actually works well for how we think about things. But think about how Jesus deals with this in Matthew five, because in Matthew five in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus quotes or paraphrases the law. He's, he always starts off with, "You have heard that it was said," and then he. And then he provides a faithful understanding of what the law was really about. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, proportionate response. Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, proportionate response. Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, proportionate response. Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, everything that Jesus says here is clearly laid out in the law of Moses. If you think of an eye for an eye as a system of vengeance, then you've totally misunderstood the law of Moses. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was all about holiness, drawing near to God, honoring his holy name, Which is why Jesus concludes that section of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He takes the same principle that the law, that Leviticus had used, be holy for I am holy, and says that's how you're supposed to think. This is, the law was, was not about sort of getting what's, what's yours. The law was about how do you live as God's holy people, drawing near to him and to one another. But that also means being serious in dealing with sin. Because when Moses hears what God says, he spoke to the people of Israel, and they they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. What's remarkable about this passage is that the same law was applied to foreigners as well as to natives. While God established Israel as his unique people, he will not let them forget that all people are his. And because he claims all people as his, therefore anyone who comes to sojourn in the land of Israel will be treated as one of the people of God. And, that, and, and very often that works out really well for them. Think about Rahab and Ruth and many other sojourners throughout. But if you, if you blaspheme the name of God, it also 
will not work will not end well for you and and indeed this comes to its full expression in our lord jesus where there is neither jew nor greek slave nor free male nor female for you are all one in christ god's name is holy because he is holy and he calls us to live as a holy people and to walk as those who belong to jesus and and living this way is part of what he's called us to do and so let's pray and ask him to help us lord have mercy because we so often forget and we don't live the way you've called us and we pretend that your name isn't holy and we treat it as a common thing lord forgive us help us strengthen us by your holy spirit that that the light of the world might shine clearly and cleanly through us and in us that the bread of life might might continue to nourish and strengthen us that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus showing forth the kindness and the mercy of your son that we might that we might love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us that we might remember that that you have sent forth your gospel to the ends of the earth that we we who are gentiles strangers aliens might be drawn near and may we have that same love for those around us that we might show forth your holy name that we might live as your holy people in a way that that draws the nations to your beloved son lord have mercy and help us and make make the nations to know of your mighty deeds and, and Father, as as we live before you in the, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our homes, help us to love as you have loved us. Help us to be holy as you are holy. To draw near to those who are who are afflicted, even as you have drawn near to us. That we might be a place where those who are beaten down and trampled by the 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 forces of of evil and the wicked. And, we might be a place where they might find refuge, where they might find rest, because your spirit shines forth in our darkness and the bread of life nourishes and feeds your people. Help us, Lord, to, to, to live as those who belong to Jesus, that in our, in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, we might show forth the grace and the mercy of Christ. Be with those who are afflicted and comfort those who are downcast. Raise up those who who are bowed down and shine upon them your light, that in the midst of their darkness they might see Jesus sitting at your right hand, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one whom you have exalted, and grant that, that together we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, living as, as, a, as one new people who walk in the way of our Savior. If we pray in his name, amen.